You're listening to the Future Sense podcast. You can find us online at futuresense.it. We are rolling, and I'm here with my good friend, Steve McDonald. How's it going today, brother? Hey, Matt. Really well, thanks. Great to be here. Absolutely. I'm so glad you were able to come on the show and answer some of my burning questions that I've been thinking about um, asking you, because you've got a lot of insight when it comes to awakening, um, as well as you know, the plant medicines and the psychedelics, from what I understand. Um, I've caught a number of your talks on YouTube and in person and listened to a couple podcasts and probably known you for five or 10 years now. And I've always been impressed with your work and your ability to relay information to people who are going through this change process, this evolution, this spiritual awakening. There's so many terms we can use to uh, address this kind of like growing uh, movement that seems to be, you know, spreading across the planet rapidly um, in this day and age around realizing what we really are, you know, like uh, in the terms of as spiritual beings, you know, more than just, um, you know, what we basically are thought of as being, which is just uh, something that comes to earth and procreates and lives and dies and is never heard from again, we are getting this experience through psychedelics and spiritual techniques that, you know, we are eternal beings and that there's a lot more to this life, a lot more layers to this life um, than we previously had thought of. Um, and there's a bunch of topics I want to jump into with you. But just to give the audience a little bit of background, um, how was it that you came to the medicine path? How did you discover psychedelics? How did you discover your spiritual nature? Well, I guess uh, psychedelics came late in life for me. I would have been 44 years old, uh, the first time I tried a psychedelic. And I jumped in the deep end, and uh, the first one I tried was ayahuasca. (laughs) Um, But my spiritual path obviously uh, goes way back, you know, as as long as I can remember probably. And um, I I grew up in a family that was comfortable talking about uh, beings in other dimensions, I suppose, you know, in in a kind of old-fashioned way. So so that was always uh, something that was there for me. And... I I guess one of my most significant memories is a, a, an experience I had in 1999 where I just had a sudden increase in awareness and it was, was very kind of routine. I was sitting at home at the time uh, and uh, reading a book on the couch and the book I was reading was uh, a channeled book. So uh, if, for people who might not know what that is, it's a book who – or that is written by a medium who is bringing information through from another dimension and recording it in a book. And so I'd never read a book like that before. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the first time. And as I was reading that book, I just had this sudden change that was instantaneous, like somebody just flicked a light switch. And I just suddenly had a realization that this was a real process that I was reading about. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were these other dimensions were, were legitimate. Yeah, uh, and that was that was life changing. You know, it really, I, I guess, the biggest change it made for me was it shifted my 
work focus uh, away from the, the more mundane things that I've been doing to wanting to work uh, in alignment with what I thought was my spiritual path. Um, yeah. And then, uh, so that, that was in 1999. Uh, and um, then it was about seven years later that I got invited to an ayahuasca ceremony. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, when I got that invitation, I didn't even know what ayahuasca was. <laughs> I literally had to get on the internet and look it up. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but I did have an interest in human development and human evolution and consciousness. Uh, and uh, by that time was working in that area as a consultant and had been doing coaching and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I decided to, to go and partake um, mainly from a consciousness perspective, I was curious to find out whether these medicines were useful tools for awakening. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. That's cool. I actually didn't know, um, about your background and with your family being kind of open to those ideas or the channeled book either. Uh, are you comfortable sharing what book that was? Yeah, I, I can't even remember the name of it, to be honest, but it was okay. it was a book by, I think she was an American medium, and it was about the life of Jesus and the Holy Family, okay. And uh, but it was channeled material, so it covered information like time spent in Egypt, uh, studying in mystery schools and those sorts of things. And yeah, I wish I could remember uh, more details, but I can't even remember the author's name, I'm sorry. Oh, um, no worries. But I, no worries. I might add, too, at that time... Um, my, I was married and had been married for quite a while. Uh, I met my wife when I was still in high school and, and we spent 23 years together. Uh, and she was quite a talented clairvoyant. So that was another aspect of my life where I had this connection to the spirit world. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. Well, what, what would you say, you know, clairvoyancy is? Um, it seems to be a type of almost sixth sense that maybe we're born with or maybe we can develop but yeah i'm curious your angle on on what clairvoyance is sure um it can come in in various ways you know you can be clairaudient and hear things or clairvoyant where you have visions uh and uh clairsentient where you just you just have sudden knowings so there's lots of different varieties of that but it's essentially an awareness of other dimensions you know that's not yeah, or hasn't been at least common throughout history. Um, only certain people have had that awareness. And as humans, you know, we all have various skills and and various, uh, I guess, uh, what Ken Wilber calls lines of development. You know, like uh, logical, rational intelligence, emotional intelligence, musical intelligence, those sorts of things. And of course, various people have differing natural abilities in those areas. So some people are naturally born musically talented and some people are obviously born talented in terms of having contact with other dimensions of reality. Totally. Totally. Very cool. So it sounded like you were primed, you know, you had already, cause for example, for me, when I had my first psychedelic experience, it was completely mind shattering in that I had no previous insight into other dimensions. I didn't know that was a thing, period. I didn't know about spirituality at all. I, I didn't even really know. If you if you would have walked up to me the day before my spiritual awakening with psychedelic mushrooms and asked me, what is spirituality? I would have had no idea what to say. I would have been like, <laughs> I, I have no idea that the fact that we have a, 
you believe we have a spirit okay like that's like the very entry level understanding i had of it and then after you know you have i had more of like a tangible experience of what a spirit was it was this eternal aspect of myself that was so much more than just the body that i inhabit um so that's really interesting to me um but when you did do this ayahuasca and this first plant medicine experience you had like what happened did it did it end up being a useful experience for you it certainly did and i might add too that by the time i had that ayahuasca experience the first one i had been meditating for seven years so around the time that i had that sudden uh, awareness in 1999 that i spoke about i also that same year started practicing uh, a Taoist moving meditation, which is actually a, a type of meditative Kung Fu. Uh, and I'd been practicing that for seven years by the time I, I took ayahuasca. And I found that meditation experience was really valuable because I had I had, had experiences uh, doing moving meditation and standing Qigong and those sorts of things that were very drug-like. You know, uh, it's an open-eyed meditation that I practice. And I, I can remember having experiences where I was doing standing jiggling outside and the ground st would start to ripple like it was water and things like yeah. that. So, so I had a good preparation really. And I found when the ayahuasca kicked in, in that first experience, it felt very much just like another meditation, only, only a bit different, you know, different mm -hmm. visuals and those sorts of things. Right so, right. so I felt that I was, I was really well prepared and that preparation allowed me to, to have a very, uh, enjoyable and constructive first experience with ayahuasca, which is a relatively powerful psychedelic. Absolutely. Um, but what, what I went into that session, that first experience with a question in my mind, is this a tool that I could work with to help people awaken? And the experience ended up being like a tutorial for me. You know, it, it uh, I had a really interesting thing happen right at the start. You know, I, I, I started feeling it coming on. I started feeling, I was sorry, seeing some sort of visual patterns and things. I thought, okay, here we go. Uh, I didn't really know what to expect, but I thought, okay, let's, um, let's see if I can work in this space, you know? So I, I just quietly, uh, in my head set the intention that I wanted to change what I could see. So it looked like wood <clears throat> mm -hmm. and then straight away I heard a voice speak to me and it said uh-uh not power over be at one with and and I, of course i knew what that meant straight away they go oh okay yeah that makes sense um so i kind of let go that that instruction and just sat with uh you know the the feeling of wanting to um see a, a wooden pattern and then suddenly I found myself inside a tree <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, oh my God, I'm inside a tree. And then I rose up the trunk of the tree, right up to the top of the tree. Uh, and it was a pine tree and, and I traveled right out to where the pine needles were in the sunshine mm -hmm. and I could feel the sunshine on the pine needles, like uh, they were my fingers. And it was, and I thought, Oh my God, no wonder plants reach up to the sun. That feels amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, no wonder. And, and so, yeah, that, that blew my mind, you know, like here I was just trying to, to change what I could see to look like wood and I found myself becoming a pine tree. I love uh, it. And, and then that uh, experience went on to become a kind of a tutorial. I had contact with a little being who was kind of like an elf or something 
who said, um, hey there, here's what you can do with this medicine, you know, and he took me on this tour, um, even took me inside somebody's body and said, you can even go into people's bodies and heal things. <laughs> you know, oh so my gosh. It was pretty interesting. That yeah. is interesting. Wow. It's funny how they seem to, you know, the psychedelics, plant medicines, they seem to elicit the experience of understanding nature from a perspective that finally clicks and makes sense to us as humans, because we could previously before that, I'm sure it was very hard to understand how a plant would feel or the sensations that a plant would, you know, would experience. And then through, you know, ingesting a plant, you got the experience of photosynthesis more or less, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's interesting. you know, at this time in, in the evolution of humanity, reconnecting with nature is obviously a really strong theme too. So, you know, it makes sense that, that I would have that kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's able to show us what we are, um, which is a part of nature, which at this point, you know, I feel very redundant saying that because I've said it, you know, hundreds of times, you know, throughout all my podcasts, but it really is the message. And I don't know, it kind of like, gives a a little bit of a weight off of everything that we're expected of by society and family and friends and all this and that to just realize that we are a part of nature. And a lot of this like struggle is just self-created in the mind. What would you say about struggle and what people go through mentally and how psychedelics are able to heal and help us change our relationship to that? In my view, psychedelics are a way of magnifying what's going on for us. And many, many famous sort of psychedelic characters have said that. And I think they also have the potential to speed up our change process, our development process. So it comes down to what the individual is feeling deep down and experiencing and what the next step is for them. You know, so if you think about human development as a a spectrum somebody who's in a different place on the spectrum to you for example might not have that connection with nature experience they might have another quite different theme which is very relevant to where they're at and what's coming next for them and i think this is a common thing in the psychedelic world is that people tend to attribute these particular qualities to the plant or the the psychedelic drug when in fact, uh, it's a quality within themselves that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that, um, you know, this psychedelic is bringing a specific message to connect with nature, but it's that your next step in your growth is to connect with nature. And therefore, the psychedelic is greasing the rails for that to happen, if that makes sense. It does. It's so strange how it knows where you are in your journey. You know what I mean? Because you know, what is that? It's almost like there are different levels to the psychedelic experience. And there's like an, uh, a first grader level and a second grader and a third grader all through high school, right? You know, like some people, when they have a psychedelic experience, they're like at grade 12 and they're having this whole different thing than like maybe what a grade one person would be having in the sense of like, say it's your first experience. Like, what do you think is that innate wisdom within the plants or within the molecules or within the self or whatever it is that can kind of tell you where you are or sorry, knows where you are and what you need 
the most right now for your self-development? I, I guess the ultimate answer to that is that through these experiences, we learn that everything is one thing, you know, and, and unity is the ultimate nature of consciousness. And therefore, you know, there, ultimately there is no distinction between you and the plant <laughs> and, and the tree or whatever it is that comes into your awareness. So given that unitive nature of consciousness, then it absolutely makes sense that we can have these innate experiences of things feeling like they're perfect and feeling like they're exactly what is required because they are, they are exactly that. So we're just getting in touch with that ultimate perfection and it shows up for us as uh, us discovering exactly what we need to discover in that moment. Yep. Totally. That's beautiful. Uh, I do want to get to the idea of Claire W. Graves' work, but um, I, I think I want to stay on the topic of psychedelics a little more at the beginning here. So uh, after this ayahuasca experience, what was the next plant medicine or, or psychedelic you know, experience that you found yourself being called to uh, partake in? The next big one for me was MDMA and... Uh, I guess after that first ayahuasca experience, uh, I wanted more, of course, and I became very interested in these substances as medicines because when I went into the ayahuasca experience, I really didn't understand that it was a medicine. Mm -hmm. you know, I went into it with the idea that this was a, a consciousness exploration tool. And at the time, I was still suffering from depression uh, as a result of uh, my work history in emergency services and the military. Mm -hmm. And I found that the ayahuasca basically cleared that up very, very quickly. So that was a surprise to me. And it was a revelation that, okay, these things are actually medicines and they can heal you. So that sent me down the path of, of uh, psychedelic medicines. And I eventually, uh, by the, the end of 2010, had attended a, a conference in Melbourne and made contact with Rick Doblin and from MAPS and uh, a bunch of people here in Australia who are interested in starting psychedelic medicine research in Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in 2011, I was one of the co-founders of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, which is a non-profit organization that I'm still a director of here awesome. and uh, is now doing psychedelic research in Australia. So, so that became and still is a very strong theme in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result of that journey, I came across the work of MAPS in the US with MDMA to treat PTSD. And I had and, and was still suffering uh, with PTSD at the time that I discovered that. And so I then became very interested in trying uh, MDMA to see if it would help my PTSD. And that was my next experience, which came actually quite some years later. I think it was about probably almost six years later after my ayahuasca experience okay. that I had the opportunity and took that opportunity to try some MDMA. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I've definitely had a firsthand experience with MDMA and it is extremely healing. Um, how would you describe its effects, you know, and as well the set and setting that people should probably operate uh, within when using this particular chemical? Because, you know, I know that it's famous as a rave culture substance where you're out dancing endlessly throughout the night, but that is not, in my opinion, the best way to use it. Uh, for healing. So yeah, what, what was the effects of MDMA for you? And, and how uh, would you say that, you know, we should, you know, how would you say that it's best utilized? 
I, I agree uh, absolutely with everything you said there. And uh, people who've, who've done it would know that you can go to a, a party and take MDMA and actually not have a profound healing experience from it at all. In right. fact, you might even have a bad trip. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's really important to distinguish between recreational use and therapeutic use and understand uh, the things that come with therapeutic use, which is working with an experienced guide or guides, you know, usually uh, a male-female therapist pair is very commonly used in the work of maps um, right. and the idea of set and setting. So set refers to the mindset that you bring to the experience. And in other words, you know, if you've had a really bad week and you're not relaxed and you come and take MDMA or, or any psychedelic for that matter, the, these things tend to magnify whatever's going on for you. So all of that mm-hmm. chaos and you know, perhaps unhappiness that you might be feeling could be magnified and you could have a very bad experience. Um, so, so coming in with the right mindset is first and foremost, very important. And, uh, usually, you know, that, that in a healing, uh, situation, that means having a clear understanding of what it is that you want to address from a healing point of view and a commitment to working with that. And then the setting refers to everything around you, uh, you know, including the people who might be helping you or the people that you're with when you when you have the experience, the physical setting, uh, things like safety, comfort, music, and those sorts of things. And it's really a very complex and um, a complex business and requiring a lot of skill to do that well. So <clears throat> I think it's just to emphasize what you said, it's important for people to understand that you know, you can't just go and, and buy this stuff anywhere and take it anywhere and expect to have the same experience. That's not the case at all and, and can be quite unsafe because, you know, if, you, if you're buying uh, drugs on the street, you never actually know what you're getting. Right. Uh, and so you may end up getting something that's got some poison in it. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess that's the, the don't try this at home uh, <laughs> standard warning. Right. Um, and in terms of uh, my situation, I, by the time that I had the, my MDMA experience, I had become familiar with the work of maps because I was already at that time involved in PRISM, our local research organization. Uh, I had easy access to all of the maps documentation, their, their reports, you know, from their research and all that sort of stuff, the dosages, how they were taking it, the set and setting and all that kind of thing. So I went into that experience well-prepared. Um, the only thing that I didn't have was I didn't have um, formal therapy as part of the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I simply had a, a trusted friend who was a sitter for me and I, I followed the, the MAPS uh, dosing protocol so I knew how much to take. Right. And then um, lay down and listen to music. And my experience, I think, was was not a typical one. Um because I had a history, as I said, you know, I'd, I'd spent 15 years in the military. Uh, I'd been to a, a humanitarian uh, deployment in Africa, um, which was uh, basically, um, even though it was a humanitarian deployment, it was a, a war, a civil war going on in Somalia. And uh, I was exposed to all the things that you might expect uh, to see in a war zone. Came home from that damaged and then had become a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And I ended up uh, leaving the army and going into working in uh, um, a rescue helicopter as a, as a rescue helicopter pilot where I was responding for, you know, to road access and, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and you know, I was in that job for five years, so I had quite a history of seeing traumatic stuff mm. uh, that needed to be healed. And what didn't happen for me in my first MDMA experience, which is unusual, was I didn't didn't have any of that trauma come up at all. Mm. Uh, I simply lay down, relaxed, listened to the music. I felt it kick in. The first thing I became aware of was that all my chakras were lighting up. And mm. remember, at that point, you know, I. I'd been meditating and doing this uh, meditative um, energy work for many years, so I was very aware of my body and, and body energy. Um, and then I felt my heart chakra just go boom, you know, <laughs> and, and it was just an extraordinary expansion. I went into a state of ecstasy and mm-hmm. thought to myself, you know, no wonder they call this ecstasy. <laughs> totally. Uh, um, and I just lay there for hours uh, soaking it up. Mm-hmm. And... It quite it amazed me that I didn't have any trauma come up to be processed or anything like that, which is quite unusual. Yeah. And then after you know five or six hours, uh, when I felt ready, I went to bed. I woke up the next morning, and I felt a sense of peace, unlike anything I could remember. So all my background anxiety had just been dialed down massively. Yeah. Uh, and I I sat and I thought, my God, I I can't remember a time in my life when I felt this peaceful. Right. And um, and to a, a good measure, you know, a good extent, that was sustained. So mm-hmm. so there was something permanently corrected in that MDMA experience, which was sustainable for me, even without the formal therapy. Uh, and that really sold me on the benefits of that as a as a therapeutic medicine. Absolutely. And stories yeah. like that are exactly what we need to be hearing to understand these as medicines, you know, because I'm sure there's still the stigma that exists in the 90% of the world that, you know, oh, it's a drug, it's gonna, you're just gonna alter your brain and whatever, you know, like they look at it so base level, but like when someone can catch such a sense of relief that they had never known otherwise, I mean, that is almost the definition of what a good medicine would provide, you know, and not only that, but the fact that you felt better for days after the medicine was even in your system is a perfect example of what a real medicine should provide. You know, it shouldn't be this thing you have to continuously take three pills a day for the rest of your life, you know, and then take other pills to counteract the side effects of those pills. And, you know, and my brother was a veteran as well. So I understand that that's kind of how they, they go about quote unquote healing in the pharmaceutical industry. But yeah, I mean, it's very clear that this is medicine. Um, and it's just super interesting to me that, you know, there's still, you know, we've seen leaps and bounds, which is amazing, but yeah, there's still like this stigma that like MDMA, there's nothing that, you could come of it uh, positive of it in a, in any sense of a permanent way or a spiritual way or these types of things. Um, what would you say to, you know, the spiritual benefits of, of using MDMA? How did it kind of make you rethink the human experience? In my experience, MDMA usually takes you, takes you into the dream state. So, uh, just to sort of lay out the landscape here, if you look at the, the great traditions uh, and, and the sort of uh, long-term religions, there's a general agreement that these other dimensions that we travel into can be mapped out as the waking state, which is what we're in now, you know, where you can see and feel physical things. The dream state, 
<clears throat> excuse me, which um, everybody's familiar with because everybody pretty much dreams when they're sleeping. And then uh, we, the, uh, the deep dreaming state, which is also called the causal state, which is beyond that. Uh, where in a psychedelic trip, you go from having a dreamlike experience where you're just thinking about and, you know, maybe having interaction with people that you know or, or uh, characters that are similar to uh, people that you interact with in the world. And then when you cross from the dream state into deep dreaming or the causal state, those characters become archetypal. So they become perhaps godlike, perhaps uh, demon-like, and they represent archetypal characteristics. Uh, you know, yeah. sort of uh, with strong themes. And then beyond that causal state, you've got um, what they generally call the empty witnessing state. So you're going into a, closer to a unitive experience there where you find yourself no longer like a character in the world interacting with other characters or other archetypal beings, but you become like a witness looking at it all and you feel quite calm and detached and everything's just kind of flowing around you. Uh, and then beyond that uh, empty witness, then you can start to have a unitive experience where you feel like you're be just becoming everything, you know. Yes. Uh, and there's no difference between you and other people and you and other uh, things in the world. Right. So, so we've got the waking, uh, the dreaming, or it's sometimes called the subtle uh, state, uh, the deep dreaming or causal, then the empty witnessing, and then towards unitive. And strictly speaking, um, the unitive experience, the more it progresses, the less you identify as being you because you're becoming everything, right? So um, there's, it, it seems that there's a limit to how much a human can travel into that unitive consciousness state, obviously. Yeah, um, or at least it, it, a limit to the amount of information we can bring back and remember. Yeah. Totally, totally. So um, if we're talking about MDMA, typically it'll take you into that s subtle energy dreaming uh, realm and perhaps into the archetypal realm, um, but usually not on its own, you know, unless it's mixed with another drug. Um, mm -hmm. You, you generally, generally won't go into that sort of empty witnessing or unitive consciousness experience. Mm -hmm. um, so... MDMA tends to be, in, in my view, it's a good introduction to altered state work with uh, psychedelic substances. Right. Um, and it, even MDMA is, some people say it's technically not a psychedelic, it's more an intactogen. Um, but it, but it's, it's typically if done with the right set and setting uh, and done, you know, with a, a good understanding of what to expect, it will be a pleasant experience and give you a great introduction to uh, what it's like to be conscious in the dream state, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, a couple of things came up there and, you know, one of them was that the reason I consider MDMA a psychedelic is you go on a journey, you know, like that's why I, I consider psychedelics as you know, the medicines that take you on a journey. It's not just a medicine you take and continue about your day. Like to, you know, to take MDMA and to go about your day in a normal way is it's not going to happen. You're going to find yourself on the floor 
you know, uh, petting your dog for 30 minutes and realizing you're late to your meeting. You know what I mean? So it's like it, it takes you very much on a journey inward in my mind. Uh, that's how it affects me. And that's why I consider it a psychedelic. Now, some people would say psychedelic, you know, meaning mind manifesting, uh, that they usually link it with hallucinations, uh, visual distortions, uh, inward experiences, kind of dreamlike, uh, spaces and geometry, uh, spaces that you can visit. Um, but you know, while it kind of differs in its flavor in the terms of the visuals, uh, it still very much takes you internal into a reflective state, into a uh, ego softened state. Would you agree with that? That's true. Yeah, I would. And the definition of psychedelic, I guess it it can change depending on who you're talking to. But in the science world, you know, typically they say that the classic psychedelics interact with serotonin receptors, particularly the two A uh, serotonin receptor, and uh, define it more in psychedelic. In sorry, more in scientific terms Uh, but you can journey like that on cannabis with the right dosage and the right set and setting you know i've certainly done that right Um, so and and cannabis you know is is not generally regarded as a psychedelic at all Mm. i I guess it just depends who you're talking to whether you're talking to a a psychedelic scientist or or somebody else they might have different definitions yeah totally very cool um one of the other things that had come up around all of it is that in this experience you're able to then reflect backwards on that mental state and for example you know during the experience of mdma for the four to six hours that's in your system almost no negative self-talk enters your consciousness right no bickering no you're annoying me no i'm thinking about this thing i don't want to think about like that seems to dissipate completely. And when you come back and you start to hear that first complaining thought again, like after your experience, I feel like, you know, in my personal subjective experience, like the next day when that thought entered my head again, I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, what, what about all the glorious unity? Beautiful. It's just amazing to be here. Like, where is that coming from? What is that? Because now I recognize that it's not me and it's not my experience and it's not what I have to listen to and it's not what I have to be, but it's just some weird program that seems to be running in my subconscious to try and be ungrateful or try to not or or try to take things for granted or just try to be uh, less patient. You know what I mean? And it really gave me a remembrance that I still work with every day to reflect back on those states and realize that I can manifest that state internally through that reflective uh, process. Uh, What does that concept bring up for you? Something that came up for me is uh, a topic that seems to be quite common at the moment, and that is genetic memory and things that we carry, which which actually aren't ours, but have been passed on to us genetically mm. uh, by our, our parents or grandparents, uh, etc. And I think at this time on the planet, this is a big issue for a lot of people because we're, 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 we have entered into a deep healing process now 
globally because humanity is going through a shift from one uh, level of development to another. And part of that shift involves us reflecting and healing anything that's necessary to heal from our past. And uh, for me and for other people around me right now, a lot of genetic stuff is coming up. So stuff that's actually not related to something that we've done or experienced in our lives, mm -hmm. but that's been passed on from our parents or our grandparents or perhaps our great grandparents and you know further back down the line. Right. Uh, and for people who come from um, groups that you know have experienced uh, persecution historically, perhaps for you know tens or hundreds of years, there can be quite a load of, of baggage that gets passed down there that, you know, that needs to be cleared somehow. So that's a, uh, a topical thing for me at the moment in discussions with other people working in this space and healers that I know and, and people who are going through their own healing work. And it, I think it's, it's almost, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider, particularly if you have been hard on yourself about what you're experiencing and you can't figure out, you know, where has this come from? It doesn't make sense. It's interesting just to sit and think about your lineage and perhaps uh, consider the fact that this might be something that's been passed on to you and it's actually not yours at all, but you are carrying it because that's the way it works yeah. and, uh, and you can also heal it as well. Wow. That's profound. And it brings to mind this one uh, meme one time that I saw on the internet in you know the, the psychedelic internet space that kind of showed... Um, it said something along the lines of by healing yourself, you're potentially healing all future generations of your bloodline. That's a very interesting idea. Um, so is it, you know, would you say that by us healing ourselves and then passing our code, our DNA on to our children and then you know, they would pass on to their children uh, as well. Like by, by, you know, stepping up and healing this family trauma once and for all that like you would be positively impacting the future generations of your family line. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. And you can even think about it in the other way that you're healing back down your lineage as well, you know, into the past as well as into the future. Wow. Yeah. That's profound. Well, that also brings to mind the idea that I've heard explored recently about how our psyche is almost the perfect uh, hybrid between the psyche of both of our parents. We tend to kind of think that we're our own being and that any negative behavior or negative uh, mental, you know, operations going on are, are simply how we were raised or the experiences we had growing up. This other idea brings up that there's almost no way to escape being like your parents because your psyche is the perfect hybrid between both of their psyches and their internal worlds. Um, does that resonate with you at all? It does, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, and it really comes down to what your fundamental spiritual beliefs are, uh, you know, be they religious or, or from some other uh, teaching. And for me, I firmly believe that we exist at a soul level, 
you know, uh, above this physical human being, above and beyond. And so, and I also believe in, in the process of incarnation, whereby that soul uh, inhabits this meaty body that we're wearing at the moment. Um, mm. So in that sense, you've got a, a history as a soul that you're bringing into the body. And there's no doubt that your parents are going to impact uh, some of your thinking and behavior in your life. I think that's quite true. But I, I think much larger than that, you have this soul personality that you bring. And that shows up in situations where you just get a kid in a family who is profoundly wise, you know, and is mm -hmm. teaching their parents lessons. Sure. Uh, probably, probably everybody's either heard of that or maybe even experienced it. Uh, and how else do you explain that, you know, um, than this is a soul level phenomena. So, um, yes, yeah, so I wouldn't get, you know, I, I think that there is truth in what you said, but I wouldn't get hung up on that being the ultimate uh, state of things. You know, there, there's through different dimensions of existence, there's much, much more to it than that. Got it. Very cool. Very interesting. Well, that does bring me to the idea of spiral dynamics, which uh, was popularized by Claire W. Graves, which I initially heard about through you, um, as I believe you're very fascinated and uh, with this uh, model, and as well have worked, uh, you know, a lot to help develop it and push it into the world. Um, and it's more or less describing that there are different layers of consciousness going on across the globe at all times and some of us are inhabiting one layer and some of us are inhabiting another um that's a very just like entry level explanation but but please give us an overview of spiral dynamics and what that means sure first up spiral dynamics comes from the name of a book that was published in the late 90s by don beck and christopher cowan uh, to American academics. And not all of the book, but maybe 95% of the book was based on the work of Claire W. Graves, whom you mentioned. And Claire uh, was a professor of psychology at Union College in Schenectady in upstate New York back in the 1950s. And he conducted some developmental psychology research. He was around at the same time as Maslow, and anyone who's, who's studied a little bit of psychology would understand and know about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, the triangle diagram. And so Graves was around at that time when those kind of things were being talked about. He actually knew Maslow, um, and he was very, very curious about the different theories of psychology that were being taught at uh, university level at that time. And he said himself, you know, every year at the end of a, a course, one of the students would kind of put up their hand and say, Dr. Graves, you've taught us these five different theories of human psychology, which one's right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so that motivated him to do his own research. So what he did was he studied 1,065 people for a period of nine years. And during that time, he did all sorts of uh, analysis on them, um, including asking them to analyze themselves by writing a, writing essays and those sorts of things. He did uh, behavioral observation. He did 
uh, timed response testing to see how they would respond to different images and words and those sorts of things. Gathered a huge amount of data. And in that time, he also looked at how an individual's data changed o- over time. So if somebody showed up this way, you know, early in the nine-year study, then five years later, what did they look like and how had they changed and what had changed in their personality and behavior? Uh, and he was particularly looking at values, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and then he knew that he's a pretty smart guy. He knew that his own worldview and his own values would have an impact on how he analyzed the data. So he got seven other people to help him analyze the data. And he, he really was very general about how they did it. He just said, here's a whole bunch of data, take it away, see if you can see any patterns in it and let me know. And then over time, he gradually put together this model of human development, which was an amazing piece of work. And he continued after the nine years had, had finished, he continued for, for many, many years, um, pro- probably the best part of 20 years or more to further develop his understanding of this information and to craft this model of human development, psychological development. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away before he published a book that he was working on. So this, this would have been his, you know, his final uh, finding. And he passed away from a heart attack in 1986 before he published that book and left the notes behind, obviously. Mm-hmm. So those two guys who published the Spiral Dynamics book, Spiral Dynamics book uh, Don Beck, uh, who had been a professor in his own right uh, at uh, uh, University in Texas teaching history, mm-hmm. And Christopher Cowan, who was Don, one of Don's students, they then took what Claire Graves had left behind and they crafted it into this book called Spiral Dynamics. And they also brought in a little bit of other information from people like Richard Dawkins and uh, uh, Six Cent Mihaly, who's the, the flow state guy, um, to, to put the book together. And the book was, was released in the late 90s. So that was really how... First of all, the name Spiral Dynamics came to be. Graves never, never made up that name that was uh, created by... Don and Chris, okay, um, and then the model only really became publicly known when that Spiral Dynamics book was published. Um, <clears throat> but of course, um, the the you know the uh, most of the value that was presented was really uh, from Claire Graves's work. So I, I um, heard about this in about two thousand and three. I read the book; uh, it just grabbed me straight away, and everything that I read in the book resonated with my personal experience of interacting with humans and being human. Right. Right. So I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing stuff. And uh, first opportunity, I went and did a a training course with Don Beck, which was just a short, like one week course. Mm -hmm. Um, And he happened to be in Australia at the time. And then the next year, uh, 2006, I went over to Texas and I did another more advanced course over there. Uh, And eventually a few years later, I, I helped, uh, put together a train the trainer course for that material. So um, it, I, together with uh, Christopher Cook, who's a, a friend and, and colleague of mine from the UK, who's, who was very well versed in Spiral Dynamics and Claire Graves' work and was one of my teachers, uh, he and I worked together to create a, a short course to train somebody to be able to train others in, in the model. And that happened, I think, in about 2008 uh, when mm-hmm. I was working in Melbourne. Um, and then 
like many of these things, particularly in the sort of human nature, psychology realm, often when two people come together and create an amazing model, they end up splitting up and, and uh, working independently. And, you know, you get two schools and that happened with Spiral Dynamics. So uh, then you had the Don Beck School and the Christopher Cowan School. Uh, and is that, uh, is that why some of them talk about different colors and diff- and then others talk about numbers? Yes, it is. Uh, and, and also, you know, Ken Wilbur uh, dabbled in all that kind of stuff as well. And, and Ken made up his own colors, you know, and allocated mm-hmm. different colors to the, to the different layers, uh, in the spiral. Cause yeah, I was, I was yeah. so fascinated after learning about it from you. I went to look it up and I started to say, Hey, this is, these are different colors. And yeah. Yeah, that's, that that's, model, and then there's n- different numbers over there, and so there's a couple of different competing ideas around what it is, but they all converge on the the idea that we're all like at certain stages of our development, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what I ended up doing was after working, I, I fell into Don Beck's school, not even knowing that there was more than one school, uh, and then after being around for you know a couple of years around the scene, I realized there was a lot of politics going on. There were even legal battles going on over mm. trademarks and all sorts of stuff. And what I did was I decided to just kind of step out of that and go back to Claire Graves's original work. And so thankfully, Christopher Cowan, one of the authors of Spiral Dynamics, and his partner, Natasha Todorovich, in 2005, published Graves's research notes in, in quite a, a thick book called The Neverending Quest. And and that became uh, you know the Bible for me. It was to go back to his original research, his original writing, and see what Graves said about these things and how he found them, how he described them. And so there were three really key things that came out of his work. The first one was this realization that human consciousness is amazingly adaptive, and it responds to the complexity of life conditions. So what that means is that whatever our life conditions demand of us in terms of problem solving and creativity, our consciousness will rise to the occasion quite literally. Uh, And so Graves described that as like a double helix relationship, just like a DNA strand where one strand was the life conditions. The other strand was the consciousness, human consciousness. And as, as one became more complex, then human consciousness would rise to match it. And it works both ways. So if our life conditions deteriorate and become less complex, then our consciousness will also, uh, you know, dip down. And that doesn't mean to say that we we lose any capacity. It's just that it's a dynamic relationship. So somebody who is highly developed and highly capable and can can cope in a very very complex set of life conditions might suddenly find themselves in immediately changed life conditions, particularly if there was an emergency of some sort. Mm-hmm. And they might have to start operating in a very simplistic way simply to save their life or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean to say that they still can't do the complex stuff, but it just shows that this is a dynamic model and people can go up and down according to what life demands of them. Yeah. Right. So that was the first key finding that he found. And the second thing was that when we go through change, it's a very predictable path. And this is not something unique to Graves', Graves work. Many people have studied the idea of human change and found the same pattern, which go, takes us from being stable at one particular level or layer, uh, and that stability starting to come apart. We go, we start feeling uncomfortable, go through some turbulence, and then eventually we 
progress into a, a deep change process which results in all of our preconceived values kind of falling apart. Nothing seems to work for us anymore. We have a, t- a time where we feel lost and don't know what's coming next, don't know what to do. And then through uh, a kind of pressure cooker process where we're, we're put under pressure and our neural networks change, our body chemistry changes, we have a breakthrough and all of a sudden we uh, become more capable and we rise to a more complex layer on that developmental spiral. Uh, and then there's a period of integration before we come stable again. So uh, Joseph Campbell's work, Joseph Campbell was a, a philosopher who described the hero's journey and wrote books about that. It's really the same thing. You know, it's about being comfortable, something calling you out of that comfortable space, going through an ordeal and then coming back again, but being changed once you come back, you know, right. and often, often that is represented in, in other people's work as a circle, but in Graves's work, because he understood this spiral progression, vertical progression, he realized it was actually a spiral that was uh, in action there, not just a circle. So when you finish that circle, you're not in the same place anymore. You're in a, a higher place, higher being more complex, if that makes sense. It does. So that was the second thing, big thing from his work was that map of the change process. And then the third thing was he mapped the land, the developmental landscape. So if you think of this double helix spiral, um, when we go through the change circle around the spiral and end up higher up, then there are landmarks on the spiral that we can look at and say, okay, this one represents the scientific industrial mindset and that era of humanity. And the one below it represents the agricultural era and that way of thinking, et cetera. And he mapped out eight of these milestones on the spiral, which were called value systems in the Spiral Dynamics book because each one of them has its own set of values, its own motivations, its own way of making sense of reality uh, and or, you know, orienting oneself in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those milestones, in terms of looking at those and how they manifest in our consciousness, the best way to think about them is like a nested set of systems. So you know, if that's the first system, the second system is nested over the top of it, and the next one is nested over the top of that. So it becomes like one of these Russian dolls where you pull it apart and there's, you know, six small dolls inside it or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, so the old ones don't go away. They're still there. And wherever where our development takes us, we can always spiral back, back down to make use of those older systems when they're appropriate in life. And we do. And that can happen minute to minute. It can happen from, you know, being at home in the morning, interacting according to one value system with your family, then going to work and interacting with it your work colleagues in a completely different value system. Right, right. Yeah, and that's where the dynamic part of spiral dynamics came from. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a little bit of new information for me because uh, part of me was kind of thinking that once you get to one of the stages, you're kind of there, and not that you couldn't recede down, but that it was kind of like more like, you know, let's say days or weeks that you're there and not that you're fluctuating in the within the day. So you're saying that we might be operating within different layers even each day. Is that right? Absolutely. And if you think of it from a problem-solving perspective and think about 
different environments you find yourself in during the day. And I guess the most obvious one for most people is work and home. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of problems that you might have to solve dealing with small children and a family structure require a certain way of thinking and behaving. And if you work as a, a buyer on the stock exchange, it's completely different, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, if you go home from the stock exchange job and you start behaving towards your young kids the same way you do when you're going, buy, sell, you know, mm-hmm. that trouble. So, I mean, that that's right. a, a bit of a ridiculous uh, example, but it, I think it makes it obvious that different values and different behaviors are appropriate in different settings in life. And right. so it is a very dynamic, elastic kind of attribute that we have as humans. But generally speaking, everyone has a dominant value system, and that is usually the most complex system that they're stable in. Mm-hmm. And when we're working with the model, we usually say that people are spread across about three value systems in general, because usually they're they're stable in one system. They've still got a little bit of the previous less complex system that's active, and they're starting to edge into the next most complex system as well. So most of their behavior will be centered around those three systems. Right. But, but so then, of course, yeah. Is it to be looked at like a hierarchy or not so much? Because it did seem like when I was studying it, like that there were, like, let's say the lowest level was almost kind of brutal and primal, right? It's kind of like uh, force and violence and uh, this kind of, you know, like the entry level, base level of the human development experience is kind of like, I protect my home and you and, you know, myself, and I will use physical means more or less to be able to do that. And that's kind of, you know, as, as most of us say brutish to be violent, right? It's, those are kind of synonymous uh, in a sense, you know, unless you maybe you're a martial artist and in a sense that can be a form of art. But I guess I'm just trying to say like, you know, to be able to solve your problems with violence isn't really the highest hierarchy of it. So is it to be looked at like a hierarchy? And as you ascend it, you become better at problem solving in better ways? Or what would you say? If you think about each one of these value systems or milestones on that spiral of complexity as a window through which you view the world, then it depends which one of those windows you're looking through as to how you interpret Claire Graves's model. That's true. Does that make sense? It so does. this is where the this is where it can start to do your head in a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you can't actually say uh, the model is this and that, you know, uh, it really depends which window of consciousness you're looking through because that's going to shape how you interpret the model. And you even you see that in how people teach the model. Some people will teach the model as a hierarchical model because that's the window that they're looking through. Other people will teach it as a circular model with all of these different things being like options on a flat table. And that's because of the window that they're looking through. So uh, I, I guess, you know, the best thing you could do is to, to try and figure out which window Claire Graves was looking through uh, <laughs> when, when he wrote the model. Which I would assume a high, one of the, the higher numbers, you know, like, so we haven't talked yeah, about the way. number system, which is easier to, it's easier for, you know, our minds to comprehend, you know, numbers one through eight, 
eight is a higher number, one is a lower number. The the model seems to be going high, like uh, the model seems to, you know, have these brackets, you know, numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And if you're at a seven, you're pretty revolutionary and visionary and on a kind of a next level and, and looked at as, you know, a guru or a leader or someone who really knows their shit right? versus like uh, someone lower. So I would assume he was coming from, uh, you know, one of these higher, higher levels. What would you say? It does look that way, yeah, uh, just because of his way of comprehending and writing about these different systems, value systems, yeah. Um, so I guess for those who aren't familiar with the model, just let's just run through really quickly what those those numbers represent. So yeah. we're going from the least complex to the most complex here. So the least complex was um, what was labeled in the Spiral Dynamics book as the first value system and given the color beige in the book and that represents early life as a human where you're basically just in survival mode if you think of a young baby not long after it's been born where it's not thinking about uh, going on a picnic it's just thinking about where's my next food coming from i need a cuddle from mum, you know and those sorts of things and at a species level that's usually equated with our first step into being homo sapiens uh, from, you know, what we were, whatever our predecessor was, uh, and life as a hunter-gatherer where basically all your time and intelligence during the day is, is centered around shelter, safety, food, and interaction with your immediate family, clan. Um, the second level represents at an in, for an individual family life as a child where you've got a, a family structure and you understand what different people represent what their roles are in that family and and how you fit in with them um, and at a species level that represents tribal uh, existence where we've gone from clans of hunter-gatherers to settling in a stationary village uh, so instead of moving roaming about where we're settled in a village and we have a structure within the tribe of a chief elders and we understand you know where we sit in that structure and around that time in history was when we saw this explosion of culture roughly about fifty thousand years ago that we transitioned from hunter-gatherer to this second layer of, uh, of values a tribal the third one then uh, comes when as individuals we start to feel like we want to bust out of that family structure like it just doesn't work for us anymore we, we need to get out and do our own thing uh, which usually comes you know post puberty in the teens and it's all about discovering our own personal power and making our own personal sort of uh, mark in the world and at a species level that came when people started to bust out of the village and and uh, sort of boundary sacred land that they belong to and go invade someone else's land, steal someone else's uh, chickens or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and I guess the ultimate example of that was Genghis Khan who conquered most of the, you know, Asia and Europe. Yeah. Um, and then, so this is a third that was uh, given the color red in the book. The second one was given the color purple. Mm. Um, and those three, uh, so hunter gather a tribal, um, let's call it egocentric. That's what Grave, Graves called it. You could call it Marshall also, though. Um, 
yeah. they were in what you might call a pre-rational zone where the rational mind hadn't become dominant. So behavior was driven by basic wants, needs, urges. You know, I'm hungry, I'm going to get food, those sorts of yeah. things. And that's not to say that people weren't intelligent. Uh, yeah. You know, if you, you look back at some of the wisdom of indigenous tribal people, and they, they had wisdom way beyond scientific industrial wisdom. Uh, and, and, you know, we can see them now at, at this time teaching lessons to the scientific industrial world based on, you know, 30,000 years of oral history and those sorts of things. So this is not about intelligence. And Graves said in his, his notes, um, there's no absolute relationship to intelligence here. It's just different ways of being human. Yeah. Um, so the fourth takes us into uh, dominance of the rational mind. So this is where the rational mind really kicked in and started to dominate our emotions and our urges and instincts. And uh, we see that when people grow out of that wild teenage phase and they they start to settle down and they look for some higher authority to provide very specific information on how to live life. Yep. And, and sometimes yeah. that can come from the structure of a religion or the structure of maybe uh, a police force or, or some particular job, you know, where there are rigid rules and only one right way to do things. Yeah. Uh, Graves called this authoritarian, this fourth one. Uh, it was given the, the color blue in the Spiral Dynamics book. And it represents how life at a species level changed when the agricultural revolution happened. So instead of, um, you know, ha having to... Uh, work in sort of armed bands to, to gather and capture resources and, and those sorts of things, or live in villages at a tribal, uh, in a tribal way, or live as hunter-gatherers, we discovered how we could produce crops uh, in bulk. Uh, and because that meant we didn't have to spend most of our day uh, searching for food or attending to crops and things, um, some people still did that, obviously, but a lot of other people were freed up and they could go build big towns and cities. And, and mm. that was another explosion of culture, of course, when that happened. Right. Uh, and then came the, uh, the shift into the modern era, which Graves called multiplistic. Okay. Um, and uh, that really represents scientific industrial thinking. So um, at an individual level, you know, after a while, when you settle down, start working in a job, um, start thinking long-term, those sorts of things. And then sooner or later, you're going to feel like you don't want to stick with the program anymore. You don't want to stick with that routine. You want to bust out and do something a little diverse and maybe, uh, you know, create some innovation and those sorts of things. And that would represent a shift to uh, layer five, which was given the color orange in the book. Um, and it, it represents the time at a species level when we, we saw the scientific industrial and industrial revolutions happen and, and society shifted that way and sort of superseded, you know, the agricultural way of living. And where we're at right now in the world is we're seeing that fifth layer of human existence collapse uh, and, we're, and we have entered into this change process, which is taking us to the sixth layer. And the sixth layer uh, in... Um, Graves's, uh, Graves's study, for an individual, it represents a change that would take you from working in a, a job where you're driven by wanting to be successful, 
So, you know, work hard, put in enough time, then you, you'll eventually get the rewards, that kind of thinking, yeah. uh, to a shift that would cause you to want to reject that lifestyle completely, uh, reconnect with nature, be motivated by human connection rather than success. And often at this time in their career, you'll see people do like a sea change or a tree change where they want to get out of the city, um, you know, and go and, and live somewhere where they can be connected with nature. They can find community. They can rediscover growing their own food. Um, right. uh, it doesn't always come that way, but that's like a, a classic example. And totally. layer six um, is typified by a very humanistic mindset and network thinking. So rather than striving to be the best and finding the best way to do things in layer five, the scientific industrial modern way, layer six uh, looks to create a strong network and then draw from the like network of minds, the knowledge within the network and work together with people in a communal way. Right. I might, I might add there that as we're going through these different layers of uh, value systems, they alternate their focus between individual and collective. So hunter-gatherer was individual, tribal was collective, um, egocentric was individual, uh, agricultural authoritarian was collective, uh, scientific industrial uh, was individualistic. And now we're going back to collective uh, behavior again. Okay, it's right. like, and, and this equates to uh, changing, shifting dominance of the left and right brain. Yeah, mm -hmm. does that make sense? It so does. layers. So layer six was given the color green in the book. Layer five was orange. And, and that takes us to the end of what Graves called the first tier of consciousness. Uh, and Graves never wrote this, but from, to me, it's looking more and more like the shift beyond layer six is actually perhaps a shift beyond Homo sapiens, a species change for humanity. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the difference that Graves found between layer six and layer seven was just off the charts, literally. The, mm -hmm. the coping capacity of somebody at layer six versus the coping capacity of layer seven, it was, it was like a quantum leap in, in uh, complexity. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. How, how are we going so far? Oh, love it. Good. Yep, I'm following you very much so. And uh, yeah, it, it feels to me like uh, the psychedelic renaissance is very much almost the driving uh factor in shifting us from five to six um and just in that it seems to instill those values uh through the experience itself that we should be close to nature we should be in community we should be in a role that we feel passion about and that feels in line with our soul you know because you know we could have these soul crushing jobs let's just call it a, being a wall street broker or something and yes it makes you a lot of money and yes you know you can afford to live in an expensive city and support your family but if you have a psychedelic trip uh and then you realize oh my god like i actually don't love stockbroking at all like actually i really just love music and why am i spending this one life that i have you know like endlessly uh, doing this job that I don't feel aligned with spiritually. And, you know, I've got enough money to support my family and myself by working my, at my job this far. So now I'm just going to quit that job and, you know, you know, 
we we could just say become you know a psychedelic musician or whatever you want to say but that's something that seems common with people where they get out of jobs that aren't fulfilling their soul and instead opt even for less money to do something that does fulfill them uh how does that resonate with you yeah absolutely i think that's a good example and psychedelics if we think of psychedelics as a way of greasing the rails, you know, uh, a way of amplifying and accelerating human change, human awareness and human change. And remember that they've been used, you know, as, as long as written history, longer, in fact, mm-hmm. as far as we know. So it's not like they just popped up for this change, but they, throughout history, they have most likely been playing a role in human development, you know, all the way along. And at this time, because of where we're at, then they're showing up as being useful for doing things like reconnecting people to nature, because that's exactly what's needed for people to transition from layer five to layer six and beyond. Yeah. Right. So to be in layer six and to have that be the primary window you're looking through at the world you know, your mission, your, you know, your identity is very uh, seemingly uh, tied in with your mission and they almost merge and you almost feel this sense of why I'm here is to do what I'm good at and brings me joy and brings me fulfillment and helps others in the process. Uh, Is that, do you think that that's accurate? I do. I do think you could also apply that to other shifts as well. For example, layer four and that agricultural revolution seem to coincide with the development of the major religions that we know, you know. And so somebody who was transitioning from layer three to layer four could also have that realization that, you know, I think I'm here to be a spiritual person and be of service and go join one of the major religions, you know, it would, would be not the same, but... A, right. a similar kind of a transition, but but I, I agree with what you said, and it certainly does apply to that layer six. Right. Well, then maybe if it's not in the sense of religion, it's in the sense of experiential knowledge, because with religion, you're very much relying on a pre-existing matrix of or thought system uh, and subscribing to that. I feel like when you become a psychedelic uh explorer you start to manifest not manifest you start to articulate your own understanding of the universe and it could actually be pulling from several systems like me for example i'm very drawn to the eastern yogic practices and i'm very drawn to taoism as well and those are completely different traditions but i found a home in like this hybrid of them and yeah. drawing from things from both that resonate with me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that really shows up this network centric sort of way of thinking, you know, rather than latching onto one belief system like you might do in layer four. Uh, in layer six, typically people look across a whole network and they will create their own network of whatever it is, you know, to, to suit right. them just as you're, you've done. And it's, it's very, it's quite classic to see people pulling from different traditions and using what's useful for them, you know, what appeals uh, to, to make their own networked version for sure. Right. Absolutely. So some of the other things that go on in layer six are typically people are highly motivated to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. And 
if you think of layer one and layer six as like the bookends of the existence of the species Homo sapiens, uh, it makes sense that when you get to layer six, you want to kind of clean it up and, and have a you know a clean uh, ending to that stack of books. Right. Uh, and if you're here on Earth to transition into what Graves called the second tier of consciousness, which will take you to, to layer seven, then you need that clean finish to provide a strong foundation for you to jump off into the yeah. second tier of consciousness. Okay, so you you can't you can't um, if you think about a trampoline, the trampoline's got a whole bunch of holes in it. It's not going to work. So <laughs> you need to make sure you get a nice solid surface that you can bounce on. And when you've got that good foundation, then you can make that move into second tier consciousness. Which, again, uh, you know, I, I haven't got the science to back this up at the moment, but it's looking to me very much like it is the emergence of a new species of humans. Uh, and so what that implies is that we can, while we're alive, go through a species transition, which is wow. a very interesting concept. Yeah, That is. I, I don't, I mean, I almost don't know what that means, but it's almost, I mean, what comes to mind is that we're becoming more like uh, where we came from, uh, possibly God or the concept of a creator um, that, you know, doesn't have limitation and can be in multiple places at multiple times. And these types of almost like kind of, you said earlier, quantum leap uh, identity. Yeah. Um, how does that resonate? It does. And it's very, very clear that this shift from layer six into layer seven involves the emergence of greater multidimensional awareness. Yes. So we, we become much more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We become much more aware that, okay, we're not just here in this dimension. And that's not to say that some people haven't already got some of that awareness. You know, we spoke at the start of the, the call about, um, psychics you know clear clairvoyance who, who might be able to see or hear into other dimensions but yes. so this is talking about everybody having that capacity once we move into second tier and everybody right. constantly having an awareness of not this not just this dimension but other dimensions as well absolutely yeah. that makes a lot of sense um so going into these more <sighs> complex areas of seven and eight i know that human language is not quite the best way to transmit you know the the information that resides in those tiers and i do believe people exist within those tiers but but how can we try to say what our best speculation is towards what happens in tiers seven and eight probably a good place to start is to talk about what doesn't happen so if we, look at, <laughs> if we look at first tier one through six <clears throat> in all of those layers of consciousness or layers of values people are driven by fear in some way okay and yeah. when we move from six into seven into the second tier that motivation by fear no longer happens and that's not to say that people don't feel fear they do but it's no longer their main motivation. You know, they can be afraid right. and do it anyway, in other words. Totally. So, that, so that's a big thing. And as I go through these, 
you just remember that you can use these as markers. You know, if you come across somebody you think might be in this second tier zone, just think about these things and they're very, very useful for, for sort of checking that. So the first one is they never do anything out of fear, you know? Right. Um, and the second one is that the tendency to reject people who have different values than you no longer exists. So again, okay. in the first tier, if you're layer five, then you tend not to like people who are layer four or layer mm -hmm. six, right? Sure. And there's an there's a absolute rejection. And particularly when you transition into a new layer, like you go from five to six, all of a sudden layer five looks really bad. And you, can, <laughs> you see that in the world right now when people talk about how the modern world, you know, treated the environment, treated animals and all these sorts of things. You can see that strong rejection factor in play. Yep. So once we go to layer seven, you you don't have that built-in rejection. You see that, okay, that's going on, but that's going on because that person's at layer five, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just makes sense. Yeah, and it doesn't yeah. have the emotional charge anymore. Yeah. Right. So it feels almost like a level of acceptance with what is, which is also uh, in line with Taoism. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, what is, is perfect. You know what I mean? It's, And yeah. I know that things are not always seemingly perfect, but it's kind of about your vantage point. And maybe even the weird bad things that seem to go on in the news and stuff might actually be ne necessary for some higher order thing to manifest. I'm not sure, you know, I'm just speculating. Absolutely. But, absolutely. You know. No, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. Um, and so we've spoken about uh, fear dropping away as a motivator, the acceptance of people with different values. Uh, so the reject the rejection factor falls away. And another aspect is that people become very comfortable working with paradox. So yeah. another way of saying that is that people see the opportunity to do things that work, which might not be logical. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, in that way, of course, uh, it, it opens up a deeper understanding. You're talking from a from a Taoist point of view of the the Taiji two, the Taiji symbol, you know, which shows the yin and the yang in that swirling pattern, and understanding that each one has a, the seed of the other in it, which is characterized yeah. by those little dots, right? And so, if something is an extremely yang situation, uh, then um, you know that if it changes, it's going to change to be yin, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so somebody from first tier might see an extremely yang, you know, an extremely active uh, situation, a violent situation perhaps, and straight away think, ah, it's going to get worse. But somebody who was able to understand paradox might see it and say, ah, this is peaking now. We should see that change. That's so, true. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it really- That it is really, true. Yeah. That that really brings up in my mind in psychedelic ceremony where someone's going through a hard moment and the shaman isn't worried at all. He's literally like, this is exactly what they need to go through. They need yeah. to purge. They need to cry. They need to slap the ground. They need to get it out. And this is a good thing, you know, where a person on a different level would be like, she's having a terrible time. Yeah. How, why? You know what I mean? Like, why would why would she do? Why would you let her do this? You need to stop her. You need to stop her from. And it's like, no, she's going through the process she needs to go through to release this trauma or whatever it is. And exactly. that shaman in that higher layer seven perspective, perhaps, 
is able to see, yeah, the the silver lining and even a thing that appears on the surface level like a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Absolutely. Another Very thing is that people in second tier from layer seven onwards um, will start to think about these different layers of consciousness as operating frequencies. So it's a very different way to think about them. You know, you, you look at somebody operating on a particular frequency and emitting a particular frequency. And in second tier, once you, once you transition to layer seven, you can actually feel these frequencies. So you can read someone's frequency. So sometimes you can look at someone, read their frequency and know straight away which of those value systems that is their dominant value system just by reading their frequency. Right. Um, and it's, that is, I find that really useful way of talking about the value systems and understanding them is as operating frequencies and the human capacity to shift frequencies very, very quickly, you know, if there's some uh, change in their life conditions. So it's interesting just to observe it that way and think about it that way. And another aspect of second tier existence at layer seven is the capacity to, to essentially shape shift and meet somebody at their own frequency. So with that capacity to read the frequency comes the capacity also to adjust yourself to that frequency and interact with them at that frequency. And what that does is it takes away their rejection factor, right? Yeah. Uh, Because they'll feel like you're on the same, on the same page. Yeah. Right. And interestingly how, uh, you know, a layer five looks at layer four and says, Oh, that's terrible. What a nightmare. Um, in a way it can, as we're looking up even, it can look almost inauthentic that a person can meet you where you're at instead of just stay in that high vibration. They can just be like, oh, you're people pleasing, quote unquote. Mm. But in fact, I feel like it's an act, uh, like a highly spiritual act of compassion uh, that takes like a sense of internal strength and identity to be able to hold space for yourself and know where you're at and still meet people where they are. What would you say about that? Yeah, I, I think you've just got to understand that whatever people are saying to you about anything really is a reflection of which window they're looking through on the spiral, you know? And, and um, in that way, it is useful to think of, of them, of each layer on the spiral as like a window that you look through that colors how you see things, you know? Yeah. Uh, so somebody who says, something like you just said, what they're really doing is they're giving you clues as to which value system they're operating from at that time. That's true. That's and, true. Um, and one of my teachers, uh, a fellow called John Cook, uh, who has passed away now, um, he really understood how to analyze language and look at the themes in language and then tie that to the particular value systems that Graves wrote about. And, and taught me how to do that. And that's a really interesting skill. And what that means is you can pick up a book and you can read the book and look at looking at the themes and the way life is described in the book. You can actually read the value system of the person who wrote the book. Very totally. interesting. Yeah, totally. This is all super helpful for sure. in understanding that, you know, we have heights that we can ascend to in our consciousness within ourself, even in a baseline consciousness state you don't simply have to be on psychedelics 24 7 to be operating at six and seven it's something you can integrate into your daily life and uh you know way of being 
Um, I, I meant to say this earlier, but it's funny that about how we talked about how within one day we might cycle through the layers. And it gave me the idea that, you know, you had said dealing with the children, you're at one layer at work, you're at one layer. And then that night, if you had had an MDMA ceremony planned, you're at that layer and that might be a seven or an eight, which really human language can't really encapsulate and deliver the, the message because you have to have that experience yourself to understand what they're talking about. Um, but you know, this is a step we have to take in discussing it to get people interested, although they might not fully understand it or comprehend it until they have that experiential knowledge themselves. But yeah, um, exactly. So when people talk about having a peak experience on psychedelics, what's actually happening is that you have the opportunity to go to a more complex level of consciousness. And it is, uh, in, in one sense, it is like taking a trip further up the spiral, you know, and having a taste of what it is to experience reality there and then coming back down again. And right. the beauty of it is that when you do that, usually you never quite come back to the same place where you were. You know, you always just get right. that little bit of expansion. Right. Uh, and many people who've worked with psychedelics for a long time say that the more you do this meditative developmental work with psychedelics, the less you actually need to take the psychedelics. You know, I agree. All of that awareness seeps into everyday life. I 1000% agree. In my personal experience, there was this kind of experience seeking um, thing that happened where I tried an an experience at a level and I said, I want to take more. And I tried that experience and I said, hmm, very interesting. I want to take more. And then eventually, though, I got to almost like the height of an experience into what point I would say well, actually, I just kind of noticed that as I would take smaller amounts, almost microdose amounts, I was getting to the same places that previously it took three times the amount to reach. So it was almost like I just could enter that space easier and therefore needed less assistance from the medicine itself. Yeah. Yeah. They're certainly showing up to be very, very useful tools for that kind of developmental work when they're used in the right way and with respect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I know we only have a few more minutes here, but I did want to touch briefly on layer eight. Now, now in my mind, it's almost like the space that you hear about 5-MeO-DMT taking people, which is a unit of consciousness experience in which they merge with the source and become all of space and time and all at once and they've been here all along and they almost recognize themselves in the dinosaurs and the fossils and the sea and let alone being a human named Matt who's age 30 you know what I mean so like they they kind of go into this massive huge experience that you can't even tell anyone about almost but that to me is the closest thing I can think of as to what layer eight is I wanted to see how does that resonate with you and and if not this, what would you say layer eight is? Well, let's start with what Claire Graves wrote. And he found out of 1,065 people in his study, six of them who had originally identified or he had identified as being able to operate at layer seven, those six shifted during the nine years and started operating in a new way, which after a lot of uh, 
I guess, focused work he finally figured out was a new layer. Because at that time, in any of the psychedelic, sorry, in any of the psychological models that were uh, common at the time, there were no more than seven levels or layers. So initially he thought he must have made a mistake. Then eventually, with the help of other people, he figured out, no, actually, this is an eighth layer. And because he only had six, he didn't get a lot of data. But what he did write was um, that the the left brain, right brain bias that he saw in the first tier, so, you know, um, scientific industrial layer five being left brain individually oriented and then layer six communal being right brain oriented, that absolutely settled down a lot in second tier and you began to get this resonant two hemisphere integration happening. There was still a little bit of bias towards individuality in layer seven and a little bit of bias towards community in layer eight, but it was probably this um, resonant integration of left and right hemisphere that brought the massive capacity, problem solving capacity and consciousness expansion that we see in, in the second tier. So layer eight showed up as being communally oriented. He said it was very spiritual. Um, and he really didn't write much more than that. He, he actually, when you go to his notes, he hasn't got a chapter on it. He's just got like a paragraph and said, really didn't have much data here. Um, these people showed up as being very mystical or spiritual, um, had a communal orientation, um, from the spiral dynamics community. So those people like me who've been working with Graves' Graves's work for, for a number of years, uh, I can talk from, from what the general feeling is this is beyond graves's research now so it's not research based it's just a, a uh, opinion yeah um and and i'm at the same time again a situated in in the current time so we're at the end the collapse of the scientific industrial era we can look around and see all of our social systems like our economic system our political systems our medical systems they don't work like they used to anymore they're not coping they're falling apart at the same time we're seeing layer six rise and new systems devised from layer six thinking, which are highly networked, uh, more capable than the layer five systems. And many people, including where I live at the moment, are starting to turn to those, um, what are still informal layer six systems instead of going to the layer five ones because they just work better. Yeah, like um, cryptocurrency, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, we're seeing this dynamic of layer six is playing some sort of a, a stabilizing and healing role at the end of the first tier. And we know that it's going to be the shortest era of the lot, because if you look at the eras from hunter gatherer through tribal, through um, warlike or egocentric agricultural, etc., each era has got shorter and shorter in time span. And, the agricultural era was maybe 10,000, 12,000 years long at most. The scientific industrial has been a few hundred years. Layer six is looking like it's going to be 10, maybe maybe 15 or 20 at the most. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be a very short space of time. It's going to be a time for great change and healing. Uh, and we're starting to see that play out right now, which is very interesting. Uh, it's, it's layer six is like a safety net that catches everybody as layer five falls apart and all the systems, you know, don't work anymore and the collapse, right. uh, layer six is there as a safety net to catch people and to heal them basically. 
uh, and to provide that solid foundation for those people who are here on Earth to transition into second tier consciousness, most likely as a new species. Uh, yeah. So layer seven, the emergence of this new species, I often think of them as kind of like the first responders on an accident scene. It's mm. like you, you turn up and see the disaster <laughs> that that's happened <laughs> from this period of Homo sapiens, you know, time on Earth and, and all of the, the damage that's been done to the natural world uh, mm. and all the poisons that have been spread around the world and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you look at the world now and you see the chaos starting to grow. And then layer seven, uh, they're kind of the, the folks that are here to um carry out first aid and triage uh on on uh you know human society and, and the planet i guess yeah so they they have massive problem solving capacity um and the capacity to um you know operate in very complex environments obviously um beyond all of the structures that we've relied on to look after us there'll be a layer 7 structure that's really yet to emerge in any noticeable way around the world um, that's going to be the first um, building block of second tier existence for mm -hmm. humans on planet earth mm -hmm. so that's layer seven you know the first in kind of things um, and then layer eight will be the first step in a community in second tier and it's likely to be absolutely globally oriented so the first emergence of a true global society yeah um you know with no racism no differentiation uh you know you you're a human on planet earth therefore you're part of society right um, and that's what it comes to so uh layer eight we expect to start to provide the cultural and social structures in a formal way on the planet that layer seven didn't have time to do because they were too busy cleaning up the mess mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense it makes and, so much sense. and then if you if you take this one step further so there's there's mounting evidence from very smart people that layer sorry the second tier is probably only three layers mm -hmm. uh seven eight and nine okay um so nine we can probably expect we'll go back to being individually individually oriented anymore and um, my understanding is that the energetic body uh, will create a triangulation between the eighth, sorry, the seventh, eighth, and ninth chakras, the seventh mm -hmm. being on the top of the head, uh, eighth and ninth being above the head, which will result in the activation, the full activation of a light body. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you go back to, to some of the oldest written stories on the planet, uh, many religious stories about light beings um, mm -hmm. who could do, you know, godlike things uh, yeah. and would manifest as a ball of light and those sorts of things. I, th I believe that's where we're headed. And I believe that once we bed down layer nine, then that will have that full capacity. And so the, the first step to layer seven is the beginning of the development of that capacity uh, and the beginning of the activation of the light body and that mm. that continues and expands with layer eight and then layer nine will complete that process uh, and if you look back to the first tier at how layer three involved breaking out of the sacred tribal lands going beyond that boundary then we should expect that layer nine will involve leaving the the planet 
and mm-hmm. uh, interacting on a galactic level with totally. with other intelligences. Yeah. Um, so seven, eight, you know, seven and eight are the stepping stones to getting to that, and each one will bring some of that capacity in in some way, if that makes right. sense. It does. It actually gave me a, f- a funny psychedelic thought that, um, you know, being layer nine, you would, with the light body, uh, being uh, capable of being in multiple dimensions at once uh, or multiple dimensions at will, that they are the light beings that people think of today coming back, you know, from the future you know, our layer nine selves are already here helping us get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's fair to say. And we've, we've got a very linear idea of history, which is related to layer four and layer five thinking on the spiral, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think as we go further into layer six and beyond, we're going to rewrite our understanding of history and we'll discard this idea that we were really dumb and we got smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. Um, and we'll look back on, you know, those early stages of human existence and just understand that, wow, they had capacities that we didn't have. And we can already do that. You know, yeah. we can look back at the indigenous folks and, and, uh, here in Australia, I often mention, you know, when I'm interviewed like this, that there's a story, a 30,000 year old story in Aboriginal culture here in Australia about a supernova mm-hmm. that science only just discovered, uh, oh, you know, wow. in, in the last decade or two. Uh, and then they were talking to some Aboriginal people and say, oh, yeah, we have a story about that. <laughs> yeah. That happened, you know. So there are capacities totally. there, you know, capacities to be in tune with other dimensions of nature and the planet and uh, interact with the weather, maybe even control the weather, you know, according to some stories, do things right. that we certainly can't do. Uh, and and our sort of common story in the modern era, at least, has been that, oh, no, they're primitive people. We're much smarter than them. But, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that way at all. Right. Totally. Yeah. There's so many that, you know, I love looking at reality as this multifaceted gemstone, you know, where there's so, you know, depending on which angle you look through it, what you see. Yeah. And yeah, there's just, this is, it's such a beautiful existence to get to explore these ideas. Um, And I definitely have so many more questions for you, but I know we've come to the end today. We'll have to book another show because I want to ask about mystery schools. Sure. I want to ask about cryptocurrency. There's so many other things that uh, I know you're well-versed on that I'd love to discuss with you. But um, but I just want to leave the audience with one final thought, and it's if they're interested in developing themselves uh, to, you know, let's say, ascend the spiral, uh, what do you think is some easy uh, advice to give them to begin that process? If you think about the body as having different aspects that include our instinctive and emotional selves, our rational mind itself, uh, and beyond that, our what you might call our transpersonal self, um, our, our emergent light body. Um, what we need to do is go through a process of integrating all of those aspects of ourselves. So in a developmental sense, that involves being in touch with our emotions, being in touch with our urges and instincts and understanding and being comfortable with those, having a structure in our rational mind, which helps us make sense of 
who we are rationally and, and how we are in the world. And that rational structure can come from things like the work of Claire Graves. Uh, and, you know, there are so many other models out there on, about human development, which, which are all talking about the same thing, just using different language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the transpersonal part really is that beginning of our explanation into, uh, sorry, our, ex- our exploration and our explanation of other dimensions, you know. And I think that's where, at this time, psychedelics are a really useful tool, but not absolutely necessary. It doesn't, you know, and I'm not saying that if you don't have access to psychedelics, you're not going to grow into this transpersonal self. That's absolutely not true. Um, we can we can operate and explore those other dimensions in many different ways, uh, including through meditation. Yeah. Yes. So, so I think just thinking about those three different aspects is useful. You know, the, the pre rational, emotional, instinctive self, the rational self, uh, and then the trans rational, uh, venturing into that multidimensionality and pay attention to all of those. And, um, of course not for, you know, the physical body is absolutely an integral part of all of that. And the, the condition of the physical body influences all of those three aspects that I just spoke about. So it's, it's about an integrated whole approach to development and not just getting stuck on, you know, one aspect, I guess. Absolutely. Words from the wise. Thank you so much, Steve McDonald. It's been an amazing chat today. Um, I really appreciate you and everything you bring to the world. I'm so glad that we met and I just want to say thank you. And um, yeah, where can people learn more about you and, and what's your website and all that? Well, thank you, Matt Humble. It's been a pleasure. Uh, this is the first podcast we've ever done together. I've really enjoyed it. I'd love to do another one. So let's do that. Let's do it. Uh, yes. If people want to learn about my work, uh, I have a podcast called Future Sense. Then you'll find it on uh, most of the big podcast platforms. Uh, it has a website, futuresense.it, futuresense it. And I run a, a charity called Artie Mesh Foundation. We have a website, which is double A D double I. Dot .org uh, and there's a bit more information there but the the future sense site has a brief outline of Claire Graves's model on the resources page and links to other resources so that's a good place to start amazing all right thanks once again and uh thank you to all of our listeners for being here thanks man cheers cheers you've been listening to the future sense podcast brought to you by the non-profit agency for advanced development of integrative intelligence part of the rd mesh foundation you can find us online at futuresense.it where you can subscribe for free and also link to our social media accounts on twitter and facebook